I need to have a certain stop gap or some kind of a limit to procrastination. I need to take action because I cannot keep on planning things forever. And I did eventually find what I wanted to do. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, focused on helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share his story of going from an endocrinologist to a medical director. We'll discuss setting clear boundaries for yourself and the importance of finding intellectual challenge, especially when you feel like you're stagnating. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll describe how reaching a tipping point in your career may be exactly what you need. Setting clear boundaries in your career is critical to maintaining a good work-life balance, positive professional relationships, and your own mental sanity. And setting boundaries is especially important when you're a doctor, where you not only experience a lot of stress and pressure yourself, but your own well-being can affect your ability to take care of the very people depending on you for care. Today, I'm speaking with Ali Jawa, a doctor from Pakistan who moved to the US 27 years ago for advanced medical training in internal medicine, endocrinology, and clinical research. He eventually returned to Pakistan to become a professor at a top public sector medical university there. Over the next decade, he built a clinical practice, set up a medical center called WillCare, served as president of the Pakistan Endocrine Society and trained several doctors to become endocrinologists like himself. Since 2015, he's been the medical director of WillCare on a full-time basis. Now, Ali and I actually first met only a couple months ago when I was in Pakistan hosting some workshops for the Lahore and Karachi chapters of the Entrepreneurs Organization. Ali was one of the attendees sitting toward the front of the room during my workshop, and I gotta say, he was one of the friendliest faces I saw in the crowd there. As luck would have it, I sat next to him at a dinner afterwards and found him to be a very thoughtful, insightful guy. I hope you enjoy hearing about his career journey as much as I did, and I think a lot of his career reflections as a doctor can apply to anyone who's ever thought about following a less traditional path still related to their chosen profession. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 95. Ali spoke with me from Lahore, Pakistan. Okay, Ali, welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast. It is great to have you on the show. Salam alaikum. Waalaikum salam, and the pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you tolerating my attempt at Urdu at the start here, but I got to try to use a little <laughs> bit of what I learned last month in Pakistan when I visited you guys out there. The last time you and I spoke face-to-face was actually sitting at a sushi restaurant in Lahore over dinner after a workshop I hosted out there. I know you're a very busy guy. I was wondering if you could just start us off by telling me what you've been focused on recently, both personally and also professionally in your life. Lately, I have been uh, focusing on my business. My primary business is uh, running a medical center based in Lahore. 
And other than that, I enjoy interacting with my peers and friends in entrepreneurs organization. I belong to the Lahore chapter and I actively engage with them for the past five years. That's actually where you and I first met. And it was really nice to actually have you in the audience there and to be able to speak with you afterwards. One of the things you just mentioned is that you're a medical director. Your organization is called Will Care. Can you just give me a snapshot of what Will Care does and the patient population that you serve? Will Care is an outpatient medical facility. We have been in existence since 2008. It has been a amazing experience in the sense that initially we started with a smaller place. And as we developed our clientele and the patient population grew, we expanded we developed a structure. We primarily deal with patients and clients referred by other businesses for medical checkups. And that has been the bread and butter of WillCare for the past almost 15 years. Can you also just explain briefly how healthcare works there in Pakistan? I heard a little bit about this from you when I was there. Can you explain the general setup, private versus public, how patients typically access care there? Patients tend to have a choice. They choose who they want to see. That is essentially because they are self-pay, they're paying out of their own pocket. There is a small group of people who have insurances and they have a structure in place in which they go to preferred providers, but it's not as well developed as in the West, such as in America. So it's basically the patient chooses who they want to go and see, a specialist, a generalist, a family doctor, it's up to them. Majority of the care is being provided by the uh, private sector, you know, all over Pakistan, but the government sector exists and does provide coverage to primarily lower socioeconomic class. Before we go back in time and talk about how you got to where you are today, Ali, I know that you're also a busy family man and you are a father. Can you give me a snapshot into your family structure, kids, how that looks for you right now? I have a big family. My children are all grown up. When you have to deal your family life as well as your business, especially when you are a practicing doctor, at times the family gets compromised. And I do have to admit that my family life was somewhat compromised in the initial start of my career in Pakistan, but eventually kind of an equilibrium and a little bit more towards the family, the tilt has been more evident. Let's go back in time and let's talk about how you became a doctor in the first place. You haven't always been the medical director at Will Care. Can we talk about your days when you were focused solely on the clinical side of medicine? And I'd like to start from the very, very beginning. When did you decide that you wanted to be a doctor? In Pakistan, when I was growing up, the usual choices, the preferred choices were to be either a doctor or an engineer. And um, I and pretty much the decision happens based on how much marks do you get and when you get a good grade and they say, oh, you are eligible to become enrolled in a medical college, you should become a doctor or an engineer. If not, then everything else comes afterwards. So fortunately, I had good marks and uh, my family had persuaded me to become a doctor and I became a doctor. When I was still in the final year of my medical training, undergrad medical training, 
my friends and my family kind of nudged me towards consider going to United States for post-graduation. So in 1996, after I completed my med school, I went to America. I did my residency in internal medicine. And afterwards, I was a primary care doc in the VA system up there in upstate New York. And afterwards, I did my fellowship at Tulane University, New Orleans, Louisiana. And afterwards, almost after 10 years of being in United States, I came back to Pakistan as a professor and I joined a leading public sector university in Lahore. And I started off with practice, built my practice while also setting up my medical center, which started in 2008. So I juggled academic appointment in the morning, clinic in the afternoon, as well as managing my medical center somewhere in between wherever I had time. And this overlap lasted about, I would say, almost seven years. So let's go through these one at a time here, because I know you went through a really quick time lapse of some major, both geographical and also professional changes. When you first went to the United States, did you know what kind of doctor you wanted to be? I wanted to be a gastroenterologist. However, During my med training, I tend to develop a little interest in pulmonology. That's being a, a lung specialist. And then I said, you know what? I don't like either. So I took two years, worked as a primary care doc to have a feel what is actually in the real life. And then I said, either I'll become a rheumatologist or an endocrinologist. And since some of my family members had diabetes, I said, I'll become an endocrinologist. So my decision making was not that complex. It was probably emotional in nature, I guess. Can you explain exactly what endocrinology is for those people who are not familiar with it? And what drew you to that? I know you mentioned you knew some people who had diabetes. Was there something in particular that enabled you to choose that over the rheumatology or the pulmonology, some of those other things you were considering? Endocrinology is primarily, in layman's term, is somebody who deals with hormones. But that's an oversimplification. It is a two-year training in United States after you have completed three years of internal medicine residency. And most of the patients in endocrinology are pertaining to diabetes and also thyroid and other hormonal diseases come under the ambit of endocrinology. I realized kind of during my training that I'm not a very hands-on guy. I like more intellectual work in which there is complex decision-making that requires a little bit more attention to detail. Rheumatology and endocrinology both appealed to me. There was a sense overall that the diabetes epidemic is an clear and present danger for the humanity. I tended to find that to be something more relevant for me, but that was just my feeling at that time. And that's why I pursued endocrinology. The other thing I'd love to hear about is your first years there in the United States. I know you're focused on your medical studies there, but I've been to Lahore and I've been to upstate New York and I've been to New Orleans. Those places are very different from one another. What was it like to go from Pakistan and live and learn in the United States for you during those years? It was very challenging for several reasons, starting from how we drive here to how we interact with patients, 
how do you get your children go to school what is the education system for them how do you interact with your family and extended family after such a long gap all of the things were challenges and they were welcome challenges i believe i was ready for it i knew because i came from here i went from here and i was familiar with the overall situation so it took some time but i had a big support with my wife and my family and um, when you reach a certain level of frustration you have a support group that helps you cope with it and that has been a great blessing for me the other thing i was wondering if you could talk about was this balance between being a professor at Tulane versus actually seeing patients in the clinic. Can you explain how you balance those two and how much you enjoyed one versus the other? Honestly, I think I enjoyed teaching more than clinical. However, clinical has its own advantages. You tend to apply what you've learned and you teach, you've been teaching to your med school students and other doctors. So when you test them in the real life, it kind of reaffirms as well as instigates or agitates you to perhaps do some research on that. And many of the clinical trials that are conducted in the United States, as well as in Pakistan, they were driven by the real life scenarios, the challenges that we've been facing. And in Pakistan, the research was a little different for us because there were so-called clinical research that was strongly anchored into the real life. And we had to utilize methods in which we did not do a lot of laboratory testing, but it was worth my while, the time I spent in research in Pakistan. So you're at Tulane University. You're an assistant professor of medicine there. What triggered you to then return to Pakistan? Actually, when I left, I had made my uh, plan that I am going to return back. And the psychological limit was 10 years. So as soon as I was close to it, I was already wrapping it up. And uh, fortunately, there was an opportunity in which the government of Pakistan would hire you from the United States when you come back to Pakistan into a leading uh, university. They would place you, they would pay you, and they would facilitate research for you. So it was a dream come true for me because that's what kind of let me stay in academics for almost 15 years when I returned to Pakistan. Do you remember the moment when you stepped off the airplane there in Pakistan and what that was like for you to be back there after being away for so long? Can you take me back to that moment? I was very happy because it was a new challenge and uh, I knew I had support of my family who were in Pakistan and I had the support of my wife who was also in alignment and was committed along with me to make it in Pakistan. Before we talk about what you're currently doing, I do want to dive a little bit deeper into your life as a doctor and as an endocrinologist. I was out to dinner with my five-year-old daughter the other day, and we were talking about the different jobs that people have in the restaurant where we were eating. And she asked me, Daddy, who has the busiest job in the world? 
And the very first profession that I could come up with was a doctor, which is what I actually told her. As you know, many years ago, I thought about becoming a doctor myself. And one of the things that eventually convinced me not to pursue medicine was the realization that the pace and the intensity of the job was not something I was going to be able to handle. How intense was your life as an endocrinologist? And what was your day-to-day life like? It was brutal, especially the first three, four years after I came back to Pakistan, because the challenge was that I need to demonstrate that I am fit to integrate. So in the morning from eight to two, I would be at the university. I would be doing clinical rounds. I would be supervising the medical doctors in the outpatient clinic that would start somewhere like 10.30ish till 1.30. I would also be giving talks to all levels of medical students and doctors. After two o'clock, I would take a small break to have lunch and then I would start my clinic like three o'clock-ish till like seven, eight. That's when you actually see your own patients between three and My eight. own patients. And it was a challenge in that sense that the patients at time would not follow you as you would like them to be. And they have different motivations. And you get frustrated that they know that this thing is not working and they still don't follow the advice. So with time, I tend to realize that I cannot control my patients. All I can do is the best advice I can give adjusted for them, keeping their socioeconomic status in mind, keeping their physical ability to take medicine in mind, keeping their support at home in mind. And if they still don't follow, it's up to them. And this realization came after a couple of years because I was very much used to giving an advice in the United States and the patient would follow because they would medicine would be covered by the insurance they would have have minimum co-payment for their visit they would keep to their appointment but this was 180 degree but when i adjusted to it and i started to realize not every patient is going to be a model patient and i need to be accepting of it and not worry too much about it that was the moment when it became a little easier However, it was tough because patients in Pakistan demand you to be present and available even in off hours. And at times it is very inconvenient. So I had to make a compromise that I had to draw a limit to when I'm going to answer their questions, when even from their calling from home. So this took some time. It was back and forth. And then you eventually find your sweet spot when you don't compromise your family life and you also deliver service to your patients. You mentioned family life there, Ali, and I know you've got five children now at the time when you were working these really long days, starting off with doing rounds 8 a.m. and then spending the last half of your day seeing your own patients. Can you describe what your family life was like at that time? I might have neglected and might have missed some very precious moments in early part of uh, my transition in the couple of years. And eventually, when things started to settle down, first, I drew a line that I will never practice on a Saturday. So in America, it's five days. In Pakistan, it was unheard of. People still practice six days a week. Second, I made a vow that I will not practice in the evening. And most people did tend to practice in the evening, sometimes late hours. 
And third thing was that I had some dedicated off hours and days, which I started to enforce in the third year after I have reached and settled in Pakistan. So eventually I was able to carve a safe time for me and my family, but it was a challenge. And I did eventually find what I wanted to do. This pace of being a doctor where you are working these long hours, seeing people who are in a lot of need, who are sick, need a lot of help, I suppose it doesn't really leave you with a tremendous amount of time to think about yourself as much. I'm curious to hear a little bit about the typical career trajectory of a doctor. In many professions and in many industries, a lot of people are thinking about, when am I gonna get promoted? Which company am I gonna move to next? In the world of physicians, in the world of doctors, how does that look in terms of your own career progression? How much do you think about it? And what does it typically look like for the average doctor? In academics, it is presumed that you will take the linear pathway. You will be from a system professor, you'll become an associate professor, then a professor, then you'll become head of the department. And if luck would have it, you would become dean or a principal of a medical college. And that is a typical trajectory. If you're in the private practice, you build your practice to a certain level that you're in demand and uh, people get other people to request you to give them an early appointment. And that is the other trajectory. Third is that people tend to go to administration and they tend to like to manage a system and including managing the schedules of doctors as well as the non-doctor support staff. Academically, I think I was already ahead of the game, so there was not much for me to further hone, but I did enjoy it. Uh, I enjoyed training other doctors to become endocrinologists like myself. So that was my passion. I became an examiner. I traveled a lot to take their exams. I mentored them, I taught them, and uh, that gave me a lot of joy. As far as practice, I reached the pinnacle very, very soon. And that was, to be very straightforward, was very boring. I Practice was somewhat not a very engaging activity for me. Does it get repetitive to see the same type yes. of patient? Because I guess most doctors are specialists. And so I've always <laughs> exactly. wondered what that's like, how repetitive it gets. You're seeing the same kind of patients, uh, different names, different ages, different backgrounds. They pretty much have a certain level of complexity. And you tend to crave complex patients, not the real simple ones. The real simple ones are easy breezy, uh, but there's no intellectual challenge. And that is what makes it a little difficult for you to keep the same enthusiasm that you would have in other challenging situations. So frankly speaking, I lost interest in practice not because it was not financially rewarding. It was not intellectually challenging for me anymore. You were about to talk about the administrative side of things. I know that you eventually made a pivot toward the business side of things. Can you take me through those years when you were starting to tinker with the idea of moving into the more business side of medicine? The medical center was 
like if you can call it on the back burner and simmering along very nicely and quietly on a certain pace uh, while i was teaching and uh, seeing patients something happened in 2015 and the uh, stimulus and the nudge that i got was from my younger brother who's also a businessman he had attended an immersive learning activity that was a two week workshop in lahore in one of the leading management schools lums is the name of it he took it in 2013 and he was able to apply all those tools in the business and he encouraged me to attend that so i took that course in 2015 and the tools it gave me the ability to lead my team i was able to objectively quantify improvement in my business and that was exhilarating because it was a very different way being a doctor you it's a one man show you are where the buck stops you are there but you say the patient either does it or doesn't do it but in managing people you need to be able to mobilize a team the team consists of people who are very different some have a different aptitude some have different approach to work and you cannot force anything in students you have a certain influence you are a senior doc and when you say you have a gravitas and you have a certain influence but to develop influence in your workplace it's a very different approach and once i got hooked to it i was no turning back how do you balance both the clinical and the medical director work during the early years of that transition into eventually running willcare i actually hired a few people the for the lead positions uh, including the administrative positions but unfortunately even that is somewhat true now if they are good administrators they don't understand the medical or a healthcare business if they are doctors they are not good administrators so the challenge is there because the healthcare industry is still not as well developed as in the united states so you have to groom them in house that is the conclusion i came up with and initially in the initial years it was very frustrating because when you are depend and relying on someone to take care of your day to day task and it doesn't get done then you have to do it and to be in the firefighting mode it's very frustrating and that can easily be the summary of my first 7 years up till 2015 that i tried i had to make compromises i had to try different people try to challenge and develop culture but after 2015 i started to discipline myself manage myself and then i started to get the people to work accordingly and if they did not they were asked to move on and i eventually started to make a team that was aligned with my vision balancing two different worlds can be tricky it's something we talk about a lot on this show you've got your day job like your actual job and then you've got this other side interest that you're nurturing and developing and at some point it becomes very hard to balance the two 
Did you experience that? And at what point did you decide that you had to make a choice to commit to one or the other? In 2015, I was appointed as a professor in Islamabad, uh, the capital city of Pakistan. So since I was going to be there five days a week, I cut down my clinic to one day a week in Lahore. At that time, administration was 30%, clinical 10%, and rest of the 50% was academic activity in Islamabad. In 2017, I quit academics totally, and I cut down my clinical to 5%, and 95% was administration. And at this time, that is pretty much the similar ratio. My clinical is now... Uh, barely 5% and it's restricted to friends and families. The rest of the time is administration, mobilization, and team building for Bill Gale. Do you feel like this was a natural evolution or did you have to make some choices at some point to say, I'm going to stop seeing a certain number of patients. I'm not going to be in the classroom anymore. I'm just curious to hear about whether this happened on its own or did you make some intentional moves? to make this happen? I wanted to get out of my comfort zone and I wanted to go to a different academic university out of town, out of Lahore, so I can increase my exposure and learning. So I knew that if I go out of Lahore, I will have to cut down my clinical practice and that was desired. Because if you're in Lahore, people expect you to come in and see them even if you don't want to, because they say, oh, you're, you're here, just come and see me and it becomes a challenge. So it was somewhat intentional. And by not resuming clinical after leaving my government job in 2017, that was definitely intentional because I could not go back to my uh, doctor chambers and start seeing patients again. It's just life was too short to not do what you want to do. That's interesting. I think a lot of us have different interests and many of us have also invested into a particular path in our careers. Now, becoming a doctor requires many years of education, training, experience. Was that hard for you at all to let go of seeing patients or not? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I was mentally prepared and it was tough for my friends who referred patients to me because they trusted me. But what I did was I intentionally had transitioned another colleague of mine who, and I referred all my patients in my absence to her so that she can build a practice. So there was no excuse, oh, who do I get go and see? I say, well, you can go and see her. She is there. But they would say, oh, she's not you. Yeah, they, I said, yeah, that's fine. But she's as good or even better than me. As you think about the doctors in your sphere professionally, I'm guessing there's probably others that you know who maybe want to make a shift out of the clinical world and do more of what you're doing, which is more of the business administrative side of things. What do you think stops doctors from letting go of the clinical side of things? It's the ego. The uh, When the patient comes and sees you for their ailment, you feel good in your heart. It boosts your ego. It makes you as if you have made a difference and this instant gratification holds you back. Well, the last thing I wanna talk about before we wrap up with what some of your interests are outside of medicine are the lessons you've learned along the way of your career journey, because I know you've made a couple major pivots here, both geographically and also in the nature of your work. 
What is something that you wished you had known about branching off to do something else in your career that you now know, having made this transition from clinical endocrinologist to medical director? I always felt I knew everything, even if it's not something to do with medicine. I heavily discounted the skill sets, the attitude, and the work ethic of people around me. And this held me back. I Because I was not appreciative enough of them. I was not grateful to them. I was not acknowledging them. So if I had early on realized that, you know what, I can do work maximum of two or three people, but if I have well-honed team of people and like 10 people, I can do work of 30. So this realization came a little late, but better late than sorry, I guess. I think the biggest influence, one book that made in my life was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It gave me hope. This is a book by Robert Kiyosaki. It gave me hope that, you know what, even if you are working, you can become a businessman eventually. If you want to do it side by side. So that was one of the practical things that I learned. Similarly, other books, when I started reading non-medical books, I came across a wealth of information and knowledge that how one can shift gears, take new challenges, and develop a business while still doing or working for someone else. If you had to give advice to your younger self about what it takes to make your career in medicine evolve into what it's become right now, what would that be? Marshall Goldsmith had very eloquently mentioned that we have a program identity and we have a created identity. Many times we are working on a program identity most of our life that is shaped at the age of three to 23. I would strongly urge the younger people to dig deeper and find out what are you? What do you think you are? And why do you want to do this work? Create your own identity. Do you want to be a practicing doctor? Just go for it. You need to know why you want to do it because you like to treat people one-on-one. Do you want to create a system in which the patients or customers or clients, they come in and get good service? and you think you can do it by being an administrator, go for that. If you find that you want to create a culture in which the society benefits from your presence and you are able to build a system in the community by working for the government or by teaching, become a professor. So you need to know why you want to do something. Don't keep doing because somebody else told you early on uh, you are good at this. Dig deeper, find out what are you good at, what makes you happy, and what do you enjoy. And finally, what's something you've learned about yourself, Ali, as you've made this move from the clinical side of medicine to the business side of medicine? I need to have patience. And other thing I want to know is that I need to have a certain stop gap or some kind of a limit to procrastination. I need to take action because I cannot keep on planning things forever. And I need to get feedback from 
all stakeholders around because I may not have all the right answers or I might have missed something which the other can illuminate and can make the process or project a success. Well, I want to wrap up with some of your interests outside of medicine and the medical world, Ali. We had a chance to spend a bit of time together last month when I was in Lahore, both at my workshop and also afterwards over dinner. And I know you have a lot of different interests. Let's just pick one here. Can you tell me a little bit more about your interest in food security, which I know is another area you're very passionate about? It's simply fascinating. I came across this concept while there was a US aid grant program for people to set up a business. And one of the areas they had was agriculture. And when I dig deeper, I came across that almost 70% of the fruit and vegetables that is produced in Pakistan, it gets lost after harvesting. I thought this was a huge loss. What if there is a way to save it. When you save it and you make it useful for the people to consume it, maybe you can contribute significantly to reduce hunger in the world. This has been my passion since 2017. And I had been studying it. I had the chance to interact with a lot of people, especially the young um, entrepreneurs. Recently, I came across a couple of entrepreneurs who are working on projects to extract value from fruits so that they are able to reduce waste and create food that is to be consumed by the people. So I feel that if we encourage ordinary people, students, other business inclined people to start looking at it, that how I can save fruit food, vegetables, and grains, so that they can be useful for people in Pakistan and beyond. This could really change the landscape. And with the climate change, the food scarcity looming around all over the world, this could be a very good way to secure food for the world. Very interesting, Ali. I just really appreciated you taking the time today to tell us more about your time as an endocrinologist and your shift into the business side of medicine and also the importance of making sure you take the time to understand your motivations behind your career moves. So best of luck with everything at Will Care. Your interest in food security and scarcity and also with everything you've got going on there in Lahore. I really enjoyed being able to reconnect with you today and hope to see you again soon. We should stay in touch and uh, Definitely. come to Pakistan. If I come to London, I'll look you up. And, Sounds good, uh, Ali. Meet Thank you, Joseph, for having me. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Ali's perspectives on setting boundaries, making choices that honor your interests, and getting clear on your why behind your career decisions. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to share a few tipping points I reached in my own career that led me to make some scary but positive changes. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I just wanted to thank A2 Hosting for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. A2 is the web host provider I use and trust for my own websites. They even offer 100% carbon neutral green hosting. For an easy, fast, and affordable way to get your personal website online today, visit careerrelaunch.net slash A2 to get 50% off your web hosting plan. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with one of your own career goals. 
So for today's mental fuel, I wanted to pick up on something Ali said about setting some kind of a hard limit to procrastination and how you can't just keep planning things forever. He said, although you could probably just continue on indefinitely just tolerating the status quo, you have to take it upon yourself to take action at some point, which is a bit of a recurring theme that's come up across the many conversations I've had with career changers on this show. And this got me thinking about how I personally have more of a natural tendency to just carry on with maintaining the status quo myself rather than leaping into something new. When I think back to the major turning points or even small pivots I've made across the past two decades of my career, in pretty much every single case, I probably could have made my move a bit earlier. Whether dropping the pursuit of a career in medicine myself or moving countries or leaving my corporate marketing job behind, or since branching off on my own, pulling back on individual one-on-one coaching, or even reducing the frequency of this very podcast from a bi-weekly show to a more manageable cadence of monthly episodes. We're all very good at just holding on to what we have and making our current situation work, but perhaps not as good at moving on to something that could be better but feels disruptive to pursue. Bold moves require bravery, and I've found that Along with many clients I work with, I only make a bold move after I cross some sort of a tipping point that compels me to take action. It's almost like you have to cross a certain threshold before you feel like you have no choice but to act. It works the same with everyday cues and triggers. For example, if you own a car, you probably don't refuel until a warning light comes on indicating your tank's almost empty. Or you don't wake up until your alarm clock starts blaring loud enough to force you to wake up. Or picking up on what Ali described, you may not change your diet or lifestyle until your doctor tells you that if you don't, something really bad's going to happen. Just to help you think about this in more concrete terms related to your professional moves, I would group the tipping points I've experienced in my own career into broadly four types of action thresholds that involve milestones, time, social cues, and wellness. So just to go through those one at a time, first, a milestone threshold happens after you reach a certain stage or finish line of sorts, like getting promoted, securing a year-end bonus, or completing an important project. One example was when I first started my coaching business, I gave myself a year to get my business off the ground and to a certain level before either continuing the business or returning to the corporate world. Second, a time threshold is based on a deadline you set for yourself, like a certain number of years worked, a period of time you're willing to put in your time in an intense role or something age-related. For example, in my first formalized marketing role, I wanted to ensure I put in at least three years at that company before moving to the UK. Third, a social threshold. Once you get married, once you have kids, once a relationship with your boss or other people has hit a turning point. For example, part of my decision to leave my corporate job behind to start my own business was just my friends and family telling me I was a consistently unpleasant person to be around due to my ongoing complaining and dissatisfaction with my job. Finally, and very importantly, a wellness threshold, your health no longer holding up, your emotional well-being 
devolving to an unsustainable state or your overall happiness just diminishing to an unacceptable place. One example from my own career was when I was struggling to keep up with the pace and volume of my individual client work about two years into starting my career consulting practice. And I remember one day I literally fainted in our kitchen from my overwork and burnout and just decided I needed to rethink my whole model of work, which is when I began making my shift into more public speaking and workshops. Now, I didn't always intentionally articulate or define each of these trigger points in advance, but whether you define it explicitly or you feel it implicitly, when you cross a certain threshold, it certainly can cue you to finally take action. If you're listening to this and you're someone who's been feeling like you need to make some sort of a change in your career, what will be your tipping point? What will be your limit? How long will you tolerate continuing on with the way you've been working or living, which you know deep down isn't how you want to keep going indefinitely? What will be your threshold that will ultimately trigger you to make a change? At some point, the onus really is on you to define when enough is enough and when you'll choose to turn your plans into concrete actions to begin that next chapter of your career. This takes me to a quote from the American theologian and ethicist Reinhold Niebuhr. Change is the essence of life. Be willing to surrender what you are for what you could become. So my challenge to you is to define what your action threshold or tipping point will be before you take action. Think about which milestone you want to cross, what amount of time should pass, what state a relationship should reach, or how badly you'll let your well-being suffer. What will it take? How far will you allow yourself to go before you can no longer not act? Before we go today, I wanted to just flag that we are now only a few episodes away from reaching a milestone of sorts for this show. The 100th episode of the Career Relaunch podcast will air this fall, and I'd welcome your ideas of who you would like to have featured in that very special episode. If you know of someone in your life or even someone a little more famous who has a unique career change story you would want to hear more about, drop me an email at joseph at careerrelaunch.net with your suggestion, and I'll definitely consider them. If they seem like a good fit, I'll do my very best to get that person on the show. I should also say that if you have a story of career change in your own life you would like to share or a question you want addressed on the show, I'd love for you to leave me a voicemail with your thoughts at careerrelaunch.net slash 95, where you can also find a summary of my discussion with Ali and learn more about his work. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 95. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community and a very special thanks again to Ali Jawa for sharing his story with us today from Lahore, Pakistan. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Today's music was curated by Jonathan Rinaldi Pohl and the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu and I'll talk to you next time.